This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On Air is back for another week with Israel Fair, Alex Blair, and our producer, Josh Elliott-Wolf. But it is not just another week for us today. We are pretty happy to announce this. Uh, Our show will be running live on Sportsnet 960, along with Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver, uh, every Saturday afternoon. So that's uh, 12 to 2 p.m. Pacific time, 1 to 3 p.m. Mountain time. Uh, This is a pretty exciting opportunity for us. We've been doing the show on Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver for the last few months, going back to the start of the, the NHL's return to play. And yeah, we're, we're excited to add the Calgary market to, to our live experience here uh, every Saturday. And uh, hope you'll give us a listen for the ones uh, out there, uh, especially in that Calgary market who might not be familiar with us. I'm Israel Fair, and when I'm not doing this show, I'm a staff editor for The Athletic. I'm based in Vancouver. I also write the occasional feature story for the site. And in the past, going back uh, close to a decade now, I've I've covered a wide variety of beats in Canadian sports, including some time in Toronto covering the Blue Jays and the Raptors. Uh, Also very familiar with Major League Soccer, with the Canadian Football League. And uh, I mean, we're in Canada, so the NHL as well. Uh, All right, Alex, uh, your turn. Let the people uh, give the people what they want. Well, most of the people in Vancouver haven't known this for the last three months, but I've actually been in Calgary doing the show from Calgary. So it's exciting that we uh, are now on 960 here in Calgary in southern Alberta. And uh, just wanted to say a big thank you to both the program directors at 960, Kelly Kirsch, and the program director at 650, Craig McEwen, for their sort of support and opportunity. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to it. I... uh, other than doing this show, I was previously at Hockey Night in Canada as a features producer for six years, uh, working sort of behind the scenes and doing a lot of the stories and features that you would see on both Hockey Night in Canada and Rogers Hometown Hockey. Um, prior to that, I did a year with uh, Sportsnet on Blue Jays baseball. I was at TSN for a couple of years working on uh, SportsCenter, uh, the Euro UEFA uh, 2012 championships, CFL. Um, I've had the chance to cover three Olympics. Uh, on both sides of the border, two with CTV, and I did the Sochi Olympics with NBC and their hockey coverage. So uh, we're hoping that we can bring a, a little bit of breadth of experience and uh, sort of a wider sort of knowledge base to uh, to both markets. And we're just going to try and have some fun for a couple hours every Saturday and and keep you up the keep you in the loop. And uh, if you're out in the car or taking the kids to soccer or if you're just trying to get out right now and get some fresh air in what has been a really challenging 2020. Uh, we hope to keep you entertained and informed. Well said. Yeah, I mean, that that's our goal. We're still relatively new as a show. Uh, as I said, it's been a few months now, but we're constantly evolving. We, we'd love to hear your feedback, whether you're uh, someone that's listened to us going back a few weeks now or hearing us for the first time. You can always text us live during that 12 to 2 Pacific window, 1 to 3 Mountain Time window at 6.50, 6.50. Or you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair. Alex is at ACPW Blair. Love to hear your feedback. And uh, yeah, hope hope you give us a chance uh, and, and try to join in on the fun. Today's show, we'll talk to former NHLer Rick Vave about his recently released memoir, where he was really brutally honest about his NHL career, some of the challenges that he has had uh, 
in hockey and, and then just in general in his life. So we look forward to having that conversation. And uh, we'll also have Pat Steinberg from Sportsnet 960. So if you're listening to us in Calgary, you'll be very familiar with his work. Uh, he'll join us for some Vancouver Calgary talk, maybe give us a little bit of the, the lay of the land, what we're getting ourselves into uh, with this Vancouver Calgary experience. So yeah, uh, re- really excited for this. Uh, you know, We'll keep doing these sort of reminders uh, about the, the, the dual station thing for now. But uh, yeah, as, as I've said a couple of times here, and, and I think Alex uh, agrees, you know, we're, we're really excited for this and, and thankful uh, for the opportunity. Um, unless you have anything else to add, Alex, why don't we dive into some headlines? Yeah, let's get into the headlines. There's, uh, there's actually quite a bit to tackle this week. So uh, why don't we start off with the NHL and, you know, what has been a fairly vague but busy 48 hours here. Uh, our colleague at Sportsnet, Elliot Friedman, has been uh, busy following up on sort of his news on Wednesday that the NHL came back to the players and basically said three months after coming to a new six-year CBA, I'm not sure those numbers are going to still work for us as owners and we are going to need to get a little bit more money back. Um, just initially, I'll just kind of give a quick overview. Basically, the league is looking to save an, an additional $300 million. And they've proposed a couple of options to the NHL players at this point. Uh, the first option was an additional 10% salary deferral. So the, the players have already agreed to defer 10% of their salaries for the upcoming season. The NHL is asking now for an, an additional 10%, taking it to 20% uh, salary deferral. And they've also suggested that escrow, which was going to be capped at 25%, will now go up to 25%. So that's a pretty big ask from the league. Uh, option two, which I think might be a little bit, you know, probably better received by the players, was uh, an increase of salary deferral by 16%. So it takes it up to 26% from 10 But the escrow remains at 20% for the coming year and would only affect years four, five, and six of this upcoming CBA, which contractually the escrow was supposed to have decreased to 6%. The league's now looking at upping it to eight and a half to 9%. If you're an NHL player, Izzy, what do you make of this ask and how angry are you at the NHL? Pretty angry, but also not surprised. And this is me speaking as someone who was not an NHL player, but when we were following the negotiations to get back to return to play, there was an understanding that it was, uh, you know, there was a big incentive for the league to get back on television screens and to conclude the season and that there were going to be some concessions made by the league to convince the players to come back. Because as we know, the players are not paid for the playoffs. Yes, there are some bonuses that involve, uh, you know, teams making deep runs. But for the most part, uh, the salaries that players sign, their contracts that they sign, they're not getting any extra money for the postseason. And so there was some back and forth. And the thought was that the CBA agreed to, the extension agreed to ahead of the return to play, was going to quell some of the more long-term issues. And even looking at it at the time, I thought it was very optimistic about uh, the state of the world, the, the, the fact that uh, we were going to be unsure at this time of year whether NHL fans were going to be allowed in NHL buildings. That is just as unclear today as it was back then. And here are more concessions for the players to make. Uh, I understand that the owners are the ones that run the league. They are certainly the ones that fund a lot of the league. But 
Uh, this is something that you would imagine when this is a negotiation. And if, if you're putting me in on the side of the players, you would have liked the owners to have a little bit more foresight, uh, you know, three or four months ago when they signed this thing in the first place, all of a sudden to cry poor or to ask for certain concessions. If I'm the players, I'm asking for something pretty substantial in return. Definitely. I think initially, if you're a player, this is probably a pretty big shock when you get that news on the NHL PA call on Wednesday after thinking three months ago that you struck a deal. And, you know, the return to play for the playoffs and that play in round, the players were not really paid for that. So that was making the NHL whole. Um, but I think if you look at the CBA in general, the fact that they're going to have to split revenues 50 50, and that has always been the arrangement, basically. The NHL, the owners, and the players are starting to get, I think, a financial reality of what a lot of us are facing is that, you know, revenues have decreased substantially and they are likely to be decreased for a significant period going forward. Um, the one bit of positive news I would say out of the last 48 hours is the strong likelihood and sort of formation of what looks to be the NHL season going forward. By all accounts, and it's not written in stone, the NHL and the players are sort of under a verbal agreement that it's going to be a 60-game schedule. They are going to play in their home arenas, and there will be the Canadian division that has been talked about. So um, what they will do is, you know, for example, if the Canucks are coming to play the Flames, they will play back-to-back -back nights at the Scotiabank Saddledome, and they will play in Calgary. And then when Calgary comes to Vancouver, they'll play back-to-back -back nights in Vancouver just to sort of minimize as much travel as they can. Um, if you look at that schedule, Izzy, and you look at the seven teams that make up the Canadian division, specifically when you look at the Flames and the Canucks, does this help their playoff chances in the coming season or does this hurt their chances by mixing up the divisions and have them compete against the remaining Canadian teams? I would imagine it, it helps because if you're to look at the prior or the, the regular construct with the Western Conference or the Pacific Division, uh, while there's a bit of a trade-off where you're getting you know, Ottawa in the division versus maybe the Southern California teams that we're not expecting to be competitive or even San Jose at this point, there's still Vegas to contest, contest with. And then it's still the Alberta teams and Vancouver that are in that mix. And I think if you're looking at, if you're putting Vegas up against Toronto, for example, I'm taking Vegas. Yes. Montreal's had a nice off season. They've made some, some nice acquisitions. Uh, they are, they go out, you know, they have some cap room. So they go out and get a backup goalie and Jake Allen. They look like a, a more solid team. They obviously had a bit of a run in the bubble as well. The way I see it, it is it's going to come down to the the teams in Western Canada. They're going to be the ones jockeying for position. Those games are going to be really exciting. Uh, I mean, we don't have to tell anybody about the Battle of Alberta, especially what we saw uh, in the back end of last season between those two teams. And there's some uh, there's some more fireworks coming between the Canucks and the Flames with Jacob Markstrom and Chris Tanev and Josh Levo joining that team. Uh, th there's there's going to be some fun back and forth. I mean, if and if you were to look at the West overall, uh, you know, now they're 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 going to be playing each other. So no Colorado, no Dallas, no St. Louis. These are these are tough teams. Uh, these are teams that have had recent success. Uh, Colorado looks like the team on the rise. They're the team that I think have inspired the most confidence in the last 12 months uh, that they're about to take the jump. They they have 
overtaken Edmonton in Toronto in that regard with young cores and their ability to build around them. So I, I do think that it is, it's an easier path to the playoffs for Calgary, Vancouver, and I'll throw Edmonton and Winnipeg in there as well, though I would put them a tier below. Okay. I, I think it's going to be a tougher division. I think outside of Ottawa, I think the the parity of talent across the Canadian teams is better than it was in the Pacific division. I think the offseason moves by Calgary are going to position them better than they were last season. And I think, at least initially, I think Vancouver is going to probably be in tougher to make the playoffs than they would have been in a Pacific division. Uh, but we will see how that plays out. Um a couple of things that came up this week, and we're going to get into you know a word that's been out there a lot, and everyone is fingers crossed, hoping for something. And you know, vaccine is the word that has been brought up by CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi this week, and it's sort of the it's the sort of hopeful thing that we're all looking forward to and hoping that it's going to change things. Uh, Ottawa Senators owner Eugene Melnick was on the Bob McCowan podcast this week. And he had some really interesting comments. And it's it's of note that Melnick has made most of his money in the pharmaceutical business. So he is an owner that would have a better understanding of vaccines, drugs, you know, pharmaceuticals in general. Uh, here's what he had to say about his optimism with uh, COVID-19 vaccine. I said it as soon as I people started talking about the vaccine, about a potential vaccine, uh, to solve all of our problems, I immediately said to people, look, don't bank on that. It's going to be so difficult to make a vaccine for this. It's very, very difficult. I don't think there's something coming in anytime soon. I really don't. Forget about this Pfizer thing. Okay, Pfizer's product, you have to carry it around in minus 70 degrees Celsius container. That's scale-up problems. Where are you going to ship 6 billion? You got to make 6 billion units unit one and unit three billion and unit six billion all have to be identical and that is where the difficulty is in vaccines you cannot scale up to the quantities you want editors eugene melnick and he has sort of shared the belief for quite some time that he does not think that the vaccine is going to be our magic bullet out of this and specifically when he's looking at professional sports. Uh, here's what he thinks is the reality for sports owners, stadiums going forward uh, as we look to return to play with COVID-19. There's a lot of ifs about it. It's not something I would bank on. I would bank on saying, you know what? We're not going to have 18,000 seats, people in seats anymore. Not for at least a few years, a couple of years. But we could get to six, 7,000. And it's just the economics are going to start changing. For sports, what's going to be important, I think, is initially the testing and the distancing. And if you can have people tested and, um, uh, and then identified as being tested negatively, of course, then I think you could have a distanced uh, attendance. And I think uh, everybody, everybody has, uh, who owns a stadium or has a team has, has done the math. So again, that's Ottawa Senators owner Eugene Melnick talking about the realities that may face uh, sports owners uh, and by, by extension, the players and everything involved. Uh, when you hear him, Izzy, say that for potentially a couple of years, stadiums that we are accustomed to holding 18, 19, 20,000 fans a night 
may only be able to hold 6,000 or 7,000. Does that surprise you? No, not at all. I've been preparing for this. Uh, I've always, maybe this is just my nature, but I'm, I'm probably a cynic more than anything. And so I've been cynical about a lot of the proposed progress or the idea that a vaccine is imminent. Uh, to me, it's a lot of that of that talk is uh, you know to keep the morale up at a time that, as you said earlier, has been an incredibly challenging year for people. And sports has been, uh, you know, for us speaking for the two of us, a central part of our lives. So it's something that we pay attention to. We follow. That's certainly true for probably the majority of people listening to us right now, uh, and and a, a lot of Canadians. And I just think that as much as it's nice to daydream about it. It's it's so far from a slam dunk, and, and you you uh, laid out Eugene Melnick's credentials in this respect. He might be a bit of a wild card sports owner, but he does have experience uh, yeah. in pharmaceuticals and, and the like. So um, yeah, I think it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a longer process, and we're seeing that with the way the NHL is going through their negotiations with the players right now. Yeah, and I think you know what I don't think there's any doubt that hockey's going to return. You you've heard it this week. Commissioner Gary Bettman does not want the NHL to be, you know, uh, disappeared for a prolonged period of time. So hockey will be back. We will be able to consume it through uh, the magic of television and through radio. Uh, Will you be able to go to games? Will you want to go to games? That is a big question. But where this will have the biggest impact is going to be on the owners and players who are accustomed to making, you know, what they're used to making. And, you know, for like a lot of us, Everyone had their sort of salary expectations, what they thought they were, you know, in line to make in the next two years, three years, four years, five years. And that's, you know, I think the players and the owners are having a bit of a reality check. And it's, you know, I think everyone's going to have to take a bit of a step back here. Uh, Switching to the NBA, the NBA had a big week. Uh, Let's start with the Raptors. They found out from the federal government that their request to play in Canada was denied for COVID-19 and public health reasons. They have selected Tampa as their preferred destination. It sounds like the players uh, liked Tampa over the other options. I think Nashville and Kansas City were some of the other cities that were in the mix. Um, what did you make of this? Um, and do you think that it hurts the Raptors, you know, as far as when free agency opened uh, late last night? Maybe a little bit in terms of drawing some more players. They did make a big move earlier Saturday and, and brought in uh, brought back Fred Van Vliet on, on an $85 million four-year deal, a guy who has really come to embody the culture that the Raptors have built over the last few years. An undrafted player, but he has earned a spot. He has become uh, you know, a, a guy that maybe in a different role, a place where uh, he would get more touches, more minutes, would be uh, on that borderline all-star quality. But in Toronto, he's been you know an incredible role player, uh, there were some ups and downs in that playoff run, the championship run, but uh, he came through big time uh, in a couple of those games with some massive, massive threes. He's he's a gamer, and they they're going to be able to keep most of that group together. Tampa, to me, makes sense from a travel perspective more so than Nashville or Kansas City. While the facilities there might be totally fine, Tampa is going to be closer to a, a lot of the teams where they are going to be traveling to uh, within their division. 
especially more so than Kansas City. I mean, Nashville is still pretty far east. And the facilities there, if they're going to be playing at Amelie Arena, where the Lightning play, uh, hosted Final Fours, uh, has has hosted basketball before. And they're going to be banking on Raptors culture and what they've tried to build over the last number of years with Masai Ujiri to, to push them through. Worth noting, too, I mean, it would apply to Nashville, but Florida is a tax, uh, you know, a no tax state. So that was obviously, um, you know, each for NBA players, uh, much like hockey players, wherever you are playing that night and wherever you're earning your money, uh, you are subject to that state's tax. So the fact that they will be playing in Florida uh, will be beneficial to some degree to the players' bottom lines. Um, Really quickly, we had the NBA draft this week. Um, it was funny. I found a lot of these players because we didn't have March Madness throughout 2020. There was a lot more unknown. There wasn't as, you know, these players weren't as recognizable for us. The Raptors picked 29th. They took uh, point guard Malachi Flynn out of San Diego State. Uh, but he's a, originally a Washington State kid, uh, had committed to Washington State and transferred. Um, but I did think it was notable that 13, um, there were 13 international players from 10 different countries uh, that were drafted through the first two rounds of the NBA draft. Uh, it's no secret. I mean, NBA uh, and basketball in general has been an international game, but it continues to grow. Uh, just, you know, overall thoughts on, you know, the 2020 NBA draft and what you'll remember from it. Yeah, definitely with you in terms of familiarity with the players. Uh, some of the top prospects didn't play in the NCAA this year anyway. They went and played overseas or they went to play in Australia, New Zealand. So there was a, definitely a bit, of that mix and it is the game is growing this was a rare year that there were no canadians picks the first time in a number of years that there was no canadian picks but uh, a number of them were uh already picked up as undrafted free agents so that that pipeline is still pretty steady uh, but it, the competition is rising there is a lot of uh basketball being played you know in israel or throughout europe and so that is that is something to to continue to watch. And it was uh, another, I mean, we saw, we saw the NHL draft. We saw the NFL draft going back to the spring, another draft that was fairly well executed from a, you know, virtual remote perspective. And really quickly, if, if you did have a chance to see it, Sportsnet's Donovan Bennett did a terrific feature on a Canadian out of Montreal named Kareem Mane, uh, who was, um, there was a potential that he could have been drafted in the NBA draft uh, coming out of Sejep, which is, sort of a high school alternative, uh, sort of after high school, before university that exists in Quebec. Um, he went undrafted, but he did sign with the Orlando Magic two days later. Um, if you haven't seen the feature, it is terrific. You should find it on sportsnet.ca. Um, all right, really quickly, as we round out the segment, um, just want to hit you with, you know, we're a few days past, but the NHL reverse retro jerseys. Uh, just your thoughts. Give me the, the three that you like the best and give me the three that you like the, the least. Well, everyone loves the Colorado uniforms, and I get it because they're aesthetically pleasing, but I, I, I don't understand the teams going and, and taking from the history of franchises that they relocated. Um, I, I think same goes with the Minnesota Wild. The, their uniforms are, I like them. I like that green and gold color, um, but same thing. Uh, it's, it's a franchise that's been moved, so that kind of stuff, a bit weird. Uh, definitely on the, on the bottom end, uh, the Islanders jerseys, quite boring. Um, Detroit's jerseys also uninspiring. Which one stood out to oh, you? Oh, see, I I had Detroit as my second favorite. My God, I thought with red pants, I thought that could look. You need really to get LASIK clean. eye surgery as a sponsor here. No, I, I I did really like Colorado's. I thought it was clean and crisp. Um, I actually had Detroit and Ottawa in my top five. 
I just thought they were clean. In some ways, I thought they were better than... I don't want to say Detroit's was better than their original. Detroit's looks like a practice jersey. A little bit, but there was a subtlety that I thought was clean. Uh, I I really Subtlety that's hard to pick up for anyone else but you. I guess so, yeah. (laughs) But I mean, this is... You know, and when I think about this, I think back to sometimes, you know, specifically, I thought back to the Vancouver Olympics when they were talking about mascots and the idea that, you know, this is for kids to purchase and the market that you're going to reach. And, you know, those were the jerseys that I thought I would actually buy these. And, um, you know, when I looked at, you know, we'll get into it in the fourth block, but um, curious to know what you thought of Calgary's, which I, I liked, uh, and Vancouver's, which I think skews a little bit more to your era than my era. But uh, yeah, that was my thought on the jerseys. Yep, we still got lots to get to. A big Seahawks win on Thursday night, kind of reestablished themselves in the NFC West. Uh, Some news with the CFL this week, a schedule coming out, probably a pretty big deal. We'll talk to Pat Steinberg about that and also some of the NHL stories going on. But coming up next, uh, it's former NHLer Rick Vave. He's uh, got a recently released memoir coming out or has just come out. We'll talk to him about that and his life in hockey. Uh, and more. And we'll do that next. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. This is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. On Air rolls on. Israel Fair and Alex Blair, producer Josh Elliott-Wolf here with us as well. We're live on Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver. And for the first time this weekend, this Saturday, we are live on Sportsnet 960 in Calgary. As uh, we are really happy to add Calgary to our live listening audience. Uh, We've been doing the show here for a few months now, uh, but are, are really excited here, especially as uh, you know, hockey is coming close to coming back uh, or getting closer to coming back, I should say, um, to to add Calgary, especially this year with an all Canadian division uh, between, you know, there's going to be some great games, Canucks and Flames, Flames and Oilers. Uh, we've got some some really young, exciting teams, uh, teams that are all trying to win right now. So those those games will be really exciting uh, as well. Um, we've got a, a guest coming up. Rick Five is coming up with us uh, to talk about his book. Uh, thanks to uh, the caller who called in uh, to um, you know help with that uh, pronunciation. That's my that's all me. That's my bad. Uh, showing my age here in this situation. Um, but we'll have him on momentarily to talk about a book. Uh, you know, he's in his early sixties now was most known for playing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs in the 1980s, uh, a turbulent time for that team. And uh, as, as Rick writes in his book, a, a turbulent time in his life. So um, we'll, we'll get into that with him as well. Uh, looking forward to that conversation. And coming up after Rick, we'll talk to uh, the fan 960, Sportsnet 960's Pat Steinberg uh, about this coming Canadian division, uh, also, some some big news in the CFL, a schedule coming out here as well. Um, uh, after a, a lost season, uh, there looked like there might be the opportunity for the CFL to come back in some capacity uh, this past year, maybe in some sort of bubble that did not come to pass. Uh, it's a league that uh, you know needs to, to still stay in the mainstream, uh, and that they've done so with a schedule. Uh, Alex, before we get to Rick... Um, what what are you making of of uh, I, we both have have read portions of the book. Uh, what are you looking forward to talking to him about? 
I I forgot that he had been drafted by the Canucks and had played, you know, parts of one season. Uh, you know, a guy that was drafted fifth overall in the NHL draft in 1979 and, you know, only ends up playing 47 games with the Canucks. Um, to think of like a high first round draft pick, a team, I don't want to say giving up on him, but, you know, making a trade that early in his career, um, you know, is something that you don't see all that often now. So I was kind of curious to sort of unpack that with with Rick a little bit and and see what he remembered about his time in Vancouver uh, before going on to Toronto and, and having his most successful years of, of his career. All right. Well, he's on the line now, so we'll bring him in. Uh, Rick's new book just came out is called Catch 22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. And uh, we're happy to, to bring Rick on now. Thanks a lot for doing this, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, my, my pleasure getting on with you guys this afternoon. Well, uh, we look forward to this conversation. Uh, the book is, uh, I think, very truthful, very emotional. I'm, I'm interested in uh, the process that you went through in terms of putting it together. Well, it was, uh, I mean, I've been asked many times, you know, why don't you write a book and so on? And I said, no, I'm not ready yet. I just, that was, you know, my mind was thinking, okay, I'm not ready to do this. And then I, last fall, I, I, uh, was with Scotty and we talked about it and then we had a meeting with random uh, publishing house and laid it out what we wanted to do. And they were like, yeah, let's do it. And so it took us from October till late April, early May to get everything completely finished. When uh, you went into this process, uh, you've decided to cover, I mean, your whole life. I mean, it's right there in in the title. How did you go about uh, kind of putting those different sections of your life into a a kind of, as we see in the book, uh, a a streamlined story that that starts from, you know, your younger days in Ottawa and PEI through to, uh, you know, the end of your NHL career and and your ultimate, your your coaching career and and now where you're at in life. How was was that in terms of of a process for you to revisit a lot of stuff? And and as you write in the book, some of it um, difficult times for you. Well, it, it really wasn't that difficult because things are good now and, and I was able to kind of put everything in the past. And, you know, I, I don't worry that much about what could have been, should have been, or would have been. I, you know, I, I'm a guy that kind of looks at everything day to day and, like, I wake up, I feel great. Well, I don't feel great. My shoulders hurt, my neck hurts. But, but other than that, uh, I'm doing good. So, you know, I, it wasn't that difficult. And, uh, you know, I mean, we obviously wanted to cover everything and, uh, you know, I wasn't going to leave anything out. Uh, that was a big thing of writing a book. And the only guy I would have written it with was Scotty. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was long and, and sometimes, uh, he had to talk to my wife quite a bit and my older sister, because, uh, there was a lot of dates I couldn't remember and, uh, they filled in the blanks in, in that case. So, uh, yeah, no, it, but it was uh, it was long, but you know, Scotty probably did more of the work because he had to put it on paper and switch things around. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he did a lot more work than I did. You reference uh, the Hall of Fame writer Scott Morrison, who uh, co-authored the book with you, Rick. Uh, Rick Vive joining us on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Uh, Rick, we were just mentioning as you came on, uh, you were drafted fifth overall in 1979 by the Canucks. 
but I only ended up playing 47 games before they moved you to Toronto. I'm just wondering if you can go back and, and share what that was like, uh, you know, if why you thought the reason for the trade and for the team, I don't want to say giving up on you so early, but uh, as I mentioned, it's it's rare that you see a top draft pick move that quickly in their career these days. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think they gave up on me a little too quick, but uh, that was Harry, Harry Neal's decision. He was kind of, uh, looking after things, uh, uh, our GM was was kind of sick and 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 not able to do a lot, so it, was, it all kind of fell on Harry. But you know what? I, I don't blame Harry. It was uh, a trade that they made that they thought they needed, and and I think they did need a guy like Tiger Williams uh, at that point because they had already traded Jack McElhardy, Donnie Lever, some of our older uh, leaders, and uh, and some of our toughness. So. You know, and then they ended up going to the Stanley Cup final, what, two years later. So, you know, for them, short term is what they needed. But, you know what, it, it was, it is what it is. Uh, I think Harry didn't think I was in good enough shape and claims he beat me in the run at training camp, which was <laughs> far from true. <laughs> and uh, Harry couldn't have beat me if he was on a bike. But, uh, but anyway. Uh, you know what? It, it, it is what it is, and you know I I'm just happy I got to Toronto, and they said you're going to get a, a great opportunity to play a lot here and play with the best players, and and they followed through on it, and I took advantage of it, and I worked extremely hard to to make sure that you know if I was going to get traded, it wasn't going to be for a while. You mentioned the trade to Toronto. You went on to have three 50-goal seasons in 1982, 83, and 84. And when you look around at, you know, the players that were at the top of the league that time, you know, you were in and amongst the the Wayne Gretzky's, Yari Curry, Mike Bossies. I mean, these were, you know, Hall of Fame players that, you know, were, were right there. And I'm just sort of wondering what really struck me about the book is on paper, those would seem to have been, you know, your best years of your career. But with a struggling Leafs team under, you know, notoriously cheap owner Harold Ballard, it didn't sound like it was the best time of your career. And I was just wondering if you could sort of expand on that and, and give give us sort of some of the details of why it wasn't as enjoyable a time as you would have liked. Well, I mean, the big thing is, yes, I mean, there were some good moments. Uh, I had some great teammates. In my opinion, you know, a lot of young guys uh, – Jim Benning, the general manager of your Canucks out there, and Gary Nyland, and uh, you know several other players were put into positions where they probably should have been back in junior, getting better as players, getting stronger and more mature. And uh, you know because of that, we suffered a little bit through a few of those years. And you know it was Harold. Harold didn't want to pay. We were probably underpaid for what guys that did what we did on other teams were making, and he wouldn't pay for a good general manager that could make a smart move at the deadline to put us over the top. And there was a lot of mistakes made, and then you know it's, it was kind of frustrating. Uh, and you know, let's face it: when you're in the National Hockey League, you're playing to win a Stanley Cup, and that's the ultimate goal. And we never got a chance to get close to that. So that, you know, that's very disappointing. I mean, I think we went to the second round twice and uh, lost in the first round three times, I believe, while I was there. And 
uh, yeah, I was frustrated. It was, uh, I mean, we, you always want to win that final game in Hoysack Cup, and we didn't even get close to that. Rick Vive with us uh, on air here, Sportsnet uh, Radio. Um, I'm interested in a couple of things here, Rick. When you were playing in the 80s and the NHL was, you know, this very open game, you had, you were a goal scorer. I mean, the 50 goal seasons speak for themselves. When you see the game now, uh, how, how do you think the game has evolved since you were playing, uh, you know, through the 80s and in the early 90s? Um. Well, it's evolved a lot. I mean, obviously, it's a completely different game than it was in the 80s. And um, I mean, there's, it's still a physical game, and, and knocking a guy off the puck to take possession is, is still part of the game. But these guys are now are, are trained. You know, they have skilled coaches, skating coaches, you name it. And, and they're, they're pretty darn good. I mean, they're fast. They're, they're great with their hands. And, uh, you know, you look no further than what we have here in Toronto with uh, Matthews and Marner and guys like that. I mean, they're they're incredible hockey players. It's it's just a different game, and um, you know, it, it's a game that I think there's a lot of guys in the '80s that could have played in today's game. There's a lot of guys in the '80s that probably couldn't have played in today's game. So uh, these guys are very talented, but so were a lot of guys back in the '80s that probably could have played in any decade. And the other part of that discussion, and you have a couple of stories about it in the book, is you know there, there's such a difference now in terms of uh, really the help the players are getting, the staffs uh, the teams have, the doctors that are available for players, whether it's you know dealing with emotional and mental struggles, dealing with uh, you know general hockey injuries. Uh, what's the biggest difference, or how much do you think that that would have helped you having that kind of structure that the hockey players have now? Oh boy, I, I think it would have been immense for me. I mean, uh, you know, I went a long time with uh, undiagnosed anxiety problems, and unfortunately, masked that with alcohol through many, many years. And uh, I, you know, I think if it was today, and I got looked at and, and properly cared for, I mean, I, who knows what kind of numbers I probably I might have been able to put up. And that's not to say I would have, but. I think being a little more healthy and, and uh, living a, a better lifestyle, I think obviously would have transcended onto the ice and made me a better player. Rick Vive, the author of his new book, Catch-22, joining us on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Uh, Rick, when I moved to Toronto in 2008, one of, uh, one of the people I met that first summer was your son, Justin, who was uh, a hockey player at... Uh, <laughs> University of Miami in Ohio at that point. And, uh, you know, he obviously had a great career uh, in college and then, you know, continued on playing for quite some time. I'm curious to know, as a father that had been through an NHL career like you did, and specifically when you look back and the reflections you made on this book, what do you think are the most, or what are the things that, you know, young hockey players or even, you know, your son could have looked at and learned the most from? Well, he could have been a baseball player because he probably would have been a better baseball player. <laughs> I say that in fairness to him. He was an incredible baseball player, but he was a pretty good hockey player as well. And you know what? It's just, I, it's a real difficult job nowadays. I mean, he's still playing in the ECHL as a player assistant coach and he still loves playing, but you know, he never did get a chance to get to the national hockey league. And now with players coming from all over the world, you know, uh, I mean, you better be good and you better work at 
your different skills that you're going to need to play in the National Hockey League. And then when you do get there, you look in the room, and every single guy on that hockey team was the best player on the team they played on and the best player probably all the way through minor hockey. So, you know, all of a sudden you're looking around going, oh, boy, I got to, you know, I got to make this team. And all these guys were the best players where they played too. So I would say that you have to set yourself apart from, from other people on the team in order to have a successful career. And, uh, you know, whether that be you might have to become a, a third-line checking forward you might have to be a third line uh pairing defenseman instead of first or second which you were your whole life so you have to adapt and i think that'd be the the best message is when you get to that if you if you do get to that level level you might have to adjust and play a different role and that's just the way it is now because all these guys are are coming in and they're all real good and they were all the best players all the way up when they played just like you were you write about hockey, Rick, being uh, an escape for you going back to your early childhood. And that's something that as you played in the NHL and had some of those ups and downs that, that you document in the book and that, that you've told us about a little bit here, um, your relationship with the game has evolved. But I mean, clearly you, you still follow the game. I mean, your son is, is, a, is still active in the game. How would you describe your relationship with hockey? I would say pretty darn good, to be honest with you. I mean, it, it's one thing in my entire life that when I was on the ice, uh, whether it be by myself uh, on an outdoor rink or even be half an hour before a practice just shooting pucks or something, being on the ice and taking part in a game or a practice or something was, it was great for me. It was like, it was like a sanctuary for me being out doing those things that I love to do and you know, it's uh, and now, unfortunately, with the pandemic, we're not playing any alumni games and, and uh, fundraising tournaments and that sort of thing. So it's kind of frustrating. But uh, I just I love the game. I love putting on the blades and getting on the ice and uh, going out and having having some fun. And that's that. I guess that's one of the things that my whole life, I, even even in professional hockey, I tried to make it as fun as I possibly could. I mean, yeah, there were some lousy times when we played, you know, but sometimes just lightening the mood or something would help a little bit in a, in a practice or something too. So, uh, yeah, I, I would have to say it's very special to me. And uh, even now, I, I love watching the game. I love watching the the stars in the game today. They're incredibly talented. And, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, in the near future and not in the distant future, uh we can win a Stanley Cup here in Toronto. Well, you certainly you certainly have the horses. <laughs> Whether or not they can <laughs> yeah. sort of put all the pieces together with the salary cap. Uh, former NHLer Rick Vive joining us on air. Where did the nickname Squid come from, Rick? Oh boy, that's a good one. Um, well, I was in, a, in Birmingham when I was 19 with the Baby Bulls and uh, Birmingham Bulls and John Brophy was our coach. So we were doing power play at one end and everybody were doing some drills at the other. And it was our power play unit's turn to go down. And Brophy is standing at center right or at the blue line, the screaming at the top of his lungs, squid. And Craig Hartsburg, who played with us that year, he's standing there and he said, who are you calling? And he said, uh, why? He said, oh, you mean Spud. 
He says, well, I don't give a F what you call them. Squid, spud, just get them down. <laughs> anyway, I got to Vancouver. No one called me squid. It was just like kind of RV or whatever. And then I got traded at Toronto. We're playing Minnesota and stretching at the center red liner here. Craig comes over and says, hey, squid, how's it going? And Dave Burroughs was standing beside me. <laughs> he looked, he went, squid? And then that was it. It kind of stuck after that. And pretty much everybody that I've played with and anybody I know really well, I mean, they still call me squid to this day. And Spud, I, I assume, was in reference to Prince Edward Island and sort of potatoes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was Spud and then until both did that, <laughs> then it became squid. Really quickly, Ricky, I mean, you you touch on it in the book, and it's a theme throughout um, sort of the prevalence of alcohol within the NHL at that time. And it's something that you, you talk about in the book that you struggled with. How prevalent was it, and do you think that it's still an issue within the NHL today? Uh, well, no, it, it, was, it was really prevalent in the 80s, or late 70s, and well, actually probably in the 70s and 60s. Uh, my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, played uh, 10 years in the NHL, Bob Stewart, uh, Boston, California, Cleveland. And, you know, he started in the uh, early 70s. And, you know, I, I know, talking to him, it was very prevalent then, and it was prevalent in the 80s. I mean, you go out for lunch, and the whole team shows up. And if you didn't show up, uh, yeah, you could go and have one or two or whatever and leave, and everybody would be okay with that. For me, it was tough because once I had that third third one, it was like, okay, I'm there until I can't drink anymore or the bar shuts down. So, And today, I don't think drinking is quite as prevalent as it was. I mean, I'm sure the players, you know, go out and have a good time when the time's right. Uh, and that was that's the other part of it is that with us, it wasn't, you know, is this the right time to do it? It was just, it was done regardless of when it was. Now I know that they have sports science teams and everything else that teach the kids that, you know, yeah, you can do it on a one day. And and if you're not playing for three, two or three days after that, otherwise it's going to affect uh, how you feel. And uh, so my guess is that they got it down pretty good now. The book is Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life. It's Rick's memoir, uh, co-written by uh, Hockey Hall of Fame honored writer Scott Morrison. And it's uh, it's a very open book. Uh, it's got a lot of stories in it, so I encourage the audience to check it out. And uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk about it with us today, Rick. No, it's my pleasure, guys. I'm very proud of a lot of the things that I accomplished in the book, not just on the ice, but off the ice. And uh, I'm glad uh, to be on with you guys. I appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. That's uh, Rick Five, a longtime NHLer. He's got his book out. And uh, Alex knows Scott Morrison a little bit as well, uh, who covered Rick for, for a long time. And that's, uh, you know, how, how that book came to be. Yeah. And, you know, Rick was a captain of the Leafs for four years. Um, you know, in the book, he talks about uh, how he was stripped of the captaincy in 1986 after sort of missing practice. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was right up there at the, you know, the pinnacles of NHL scoring in the early 80s in 82, 83 and 84. Um, you know, there's been a lot of talk this week whether the Leafs should retire his number 22. He's sort of in the conversation, but it hasn't happened to this point. 
And uh, I, the, the other thing I kind of chuckled out was he was drafted by the Canucks fifth overall in 1979, only played 47 games. But when his career came to an end in 1993, it was with the AHL's Hamilton Canucks. So he kind of came in as a Canuck and went out as a Canuck. So, yeah. All right. So that was Rick Vive uh, coming up next. The fan 960's Pat Steinberg. We'll have some Calgary Vancouver talk and we'll do that next. It's on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. This is On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Our producer, Josh Elliott-Wolf, here with us as well. If you're listening to Sportsnet 960 in Calgary, we are a new program on offer uh, on the station. Uh, we are uh, have been doing the show in Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver for the last few months, going back uh, to the NHL's return to play in, in, in the bubble and have carried that on through throughout. Uh, I am Israel Fair. I am in Vancouver. Alex is actually currently in Calgary and has been there for the last few months as well. Uh, so we thought, you know what? Why don't we do some synergy here? Why don't we, we, we uh, you know, bring the two markets together? Uh, and we look forward to it. We look forward to having some fun. Uh, on air, we are live every Saturday from 12 to 2 Pacific time, 1 to 3 Mountain time. Uh, you can find us on Sportsnet 650 and Sportsnet 960. And uh, you can always find us on our podcasts as well. Uh, we podcast all of our interviews and then all of our all of our regular segments, our headline segments and some of our other stuff. So uh, looking forward to a conversation with a guy who's uh, very familiar with those uh, in Calgary. Pat Steinberg will join us momentarily to, to talk some some of the, the big stories going on in the NHL, getting set for what we hope is uh, pretty soon to, to getting a season. Uh, I mean, Alex, we've been talking about this since the end of the last season, since the Stanley Cup was awarded. And we've had, uh, you know, there's been so many different dates talked about. And while the NHL has stayed pretty firm on Jan 1, uh, there was uh, a couple of weeks there where it looked like February was going to be uh, the time. Now, Jan 1 is still the public date, but there's a little uncertainty there. It might be a couple of weeks later. Where are you at right now? with the NHL's return? I believe we'll play in January. Uh, I don't know if it'll be January 1. Uh, we talked about last week the maybe the challenges that will come into play with a January 1 start date, and one of those being typically the players have the Christmas break and they're able to go home with their families. And with December 25th being that close to the start of puck drop, players would likely be sequestered in their cities for training camp. And, you know, are they going to agree to miss out on Christmas with their families? Uh, if they can potentially start the season a week or two later and allow that to work. But um, I think it's the, the biggest reality players want to play. I think the commissioner wants to play, which is a big one. The biggest thing is I think the reality of the economic impact on the teams and therefore the players. And I think, the players are going to have to probably realize what this is going to cost them. And when you're a player with a short career, uh, it's it's a pretty big number that you're probably going to miss out on. And it's it's money that you probably aren't going to make back down the road. Well, in that from that standpoint, we, we did open the show with this. But what would you be what would you be looking at if you were a player and tr try to get in return or to to get some sort of concession made, understanding that that broad financial landscape is not going to change anytime soon? 
I would be all over the deferral money. Uh, basically, I would be taking less now, but getting that money down the road. It sounds like the escrow increase on the escrow caps that the NHL has proposed are a big non-starter for players. And uh, yeah, so I would I would be looking to, you know, increase the amount of salary that I'm deferring this upcoming year, knowing that, you know, at some point down the road, I will see those dollars. All right. Uh, he's on the line now. It's Pat, Pat Steinberg. He's the host of the big show on Sportsnet 960. Uh, we're the interlopers in this case. Uh, we are making our Calgary debut here. Uh, we've been on the air in Vancouver for a few months now, but, but Pat's the guy that you know if you're out in Calgary. So I, I, let's start with this, Pat. What, what are we getting ourselves into doing a, you know, a, a two-market show, doing a Vancouver and Calgary show, especially heading into a season where it looks like we're going to have an all-Canadian division? Yeah, uh, ten matchups with Calgary and Vancouver. Just, just don't, uh, just don't, uh, don't spend too much time uh, professing your love for the uh, the team in Vancouver. You guys should be good. Uh, but I, 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 I think that I think that you're in a market that uh, appreciates good hockey talk. So, welcome, gentlemen. Welcome, uh, welcome to the radio station. Appreciate it, Pat. Uh, before we get into the serious stuff, I think. One of the things we'll get out of the way early was just the reverse retro jerseys that came out earlier this week. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm curious because as an outsider, uh, you know, I'm living in Calgary, but I didn't grow up with the Flames. What was the reception to the return of Blasty? Because as, as an outsider, I, I quite like the, the uniform that Calgary put forth in this case. Well, it's a polarizing one. So that jersey, so I'll, I'll take you on a little bit of a trip for those who don't know. So that jersey came out in Calgary in 1998. It came out in a span of time where the Flames were a really, really bad hockey team. Some of their worst years ever came between 1996 and 2004 when they missed the playoffs for seven straight years. They were not very good. They uh, they had very few bright spots. There was Jerome Ginla. There was Darren Flurry near the end of his time in Calgary. But there wasn't a whole lot good that was going on. So that jersey came out, and immediately it was either loved or hated when it first came out. And I think the reason why it was so polarizing then was – it was so different than anything we've ever seen from a Flames jersey before. It's always been some incarnation of the Flaming Sea on the front. Now here's this black jersey with a flaming horse head on it. You're like, what is going on? So it was polarizing to begin with, but then the team was bad for a good chunk of that jersey's life, and it got scrapped the year after the lockout, the year after they, or two years after they went to the Stanley Cup final. And then ever since, it's kind of been an alternate logo, that flaming horse head, but it's kind of just been forgotten. And over the last five or six years, there's been people clamoring for it to come back as there's been more and more of a proliferation of third jerseys. And so over the last the last year or two, there's been this really huge groundswell of bring this thing back. So when it when it was first rumored that it was coming back, it was polarizing once again, but I think that there was a good chunk of the people that hated it before kind of came around to it being a cool little nostalgic thing. So I would say I would say that the response has been for the most part positive. Like I would say seventy five percent positive. And the people who really love it, really love it. And then there's that twenty five percent of people who I don't think can be forgotten. They really don't like it. There's a lot of people who are like it represents an awful time. It was a gimmicky jersey then and it's still a gimmicky logo now. But I love it. I think it looks great. It's uh 
nostalgic for me. That's the first jersey that I ever purchased was the original one back in the late 1990s. So I think it looks it looks good. They've modernized it a little bit, and I like the way that different teams went about doing their reverse retro. Like I like on the other side of of this show and in, in Vancouver. Like I love the fact that they use the current colors but that gradient scheme from the old jerseys and kind of meshed them together. I think it looks really good. And, and Calgary didn't go kind of the same way. They just decided to revamp an old classic, but I think it looks good. And everybody that I've spoken to at the flames says they have had overwhelming response from a sales perspective since the pre-sale started earlier this month. So I think for the most part, the response has been good, but there's definitely, and will always be, a faction of people who do not like that jersey and who do not like that logo, but I am not one of those people. I love it. I think it looks great. My memory of that jersey is the Jerome McGinley, I think of the 50th goal against Chicago yep. down the wing, and that that was my strongest memory of that jersey. So Well, um, and they, they brought it in originally as a third jersey, and they switched it to being their everyday jersey, but yeah, he scored that goal with that jersey on against Jocelyn Tebow when he scored his 50th goal for the first time. It's good memory. Izzy and I were just chatting before you came on. Uh, I know you have his, uh, Elliot Friedman on every Monday, so you'll probably have a lot to talk about with Elliot this week because Elliot broke the news, I think, late Tuesday night and then into Wednesday, and it's been a bit of an evolving story about the NHL and the owners going back to the players and looking to recoup somewhere in the neighborhood of $300 million and coming up with some creative solutions on how to do that um just your reaction and what do you think the players are thinking at this point just three or four months after they you know signed what they thought was an ironclad uh cba yeah we've talked a lot about it this week and it's one of those it's one of those things where a lot of times when you're talking about labor negotiations and and money that we really can't fathom you're kind of like it's it's hard to relate to either side, but this is this is one of those cases where I kind of understand where both sides are coming from. Like you're right, if you're the players, you just signed something in July and you negotiated something in really good faith, and you're like, okay, this is a new collective bargaining agreement. It avoids a lockout or a strike down the road, and we got this done. And then four months later, here are the owners coming back at you saying, actually, we want to change it. And we need you to, uh, we need, we need you to take some more concessions. And so if, if I'm a player, and especially if I'm, uh, in, in part of the NHLPA leadership as a player, I'm saying, well, what is this? How, how are you proposing us take more hits four months after we established this CBA? But then on the other side, what, what I think, I don't think it's getting forgotten, but the, the one thing that I, I balance the conversation with is that, geez, this pandemic has hurt NHL ownership and the NHL business model, maybe even more so than the league thought it was going to when it first ratified this CBA in, in July. Like I don't, they, they went into the return to play hoping they would recoup X amount of money and, and maybe they didn't get the television ratings and the type of money back they were hoping they would in that return to play. I don't think that it was uh, a dire difference, but I don't think that it was as much of a financial boon or a recouping as they were hoping. And now you're looking at it and saying, well, we might not have fans in the majority of buildings until the postseason of this coming season, or maybe not even then. Maybe we're talking about not until the fall of 21 for owners to start getting butts back in seats. And so you're saying to yourself, well, we, we projected this and, and maybe it's going to be this. And 
the millions of dollars that we're now projected to lose. We didn't even write this in to the original CBA. So I think, and I think what is the good news is that when Elliot joined our morning show on Sportsnet 960 on Friday, he said that since Wednesday and since the story really broke, it feels like the rhetoric is toned down and both the owners and the players have kind of gone back and said, okay, we know that the most important thing is playing hockey this season. We know we need to get a season. It doesn't hurt, doesn't help anybody if there's no season. So it feels like as, as miffed as the players might be or as frustrated as the owners might be, there's still a real desire to figure something out that works for both sides so they can play, so they can have this bridge season. So, yeah, I, I, I get it from both sides. And everything that you're hearing right now, guys, is that as, as much as there's a little bit of a, a bump in the road or a hurdle here, it, it seems like there is a concerted desire on both sides to make sure they figure something out. So I, I'm not worried about us not playing. I, I think that we're going to figure it out. It just might take another week or two to figure out all the finer points here. So I'll ask you, Pat, what I asked Alex to open this segment. Uh, the NHL is still staying really strong on Jan 1. I mean, that's they've been... Uh, they've been going back to the bubble situation, not exactly uh, open to, you know, putting hard dates on stuff like that. And and, and, mm-hmm. and they don't want to change a lot of scenarios. So for them, publicly, it's Gen 1. I mean, you go back a month, it seemed like February was going to be the play. Now we're seeing, you know, maybe Gen 1 is still possible if they can figure this out in the next seven or 10 days. Uh, maybe mid-January is more realistic. Where are you at with where where we might actually get a season to get started? I, I'm one of those, and I, I don't know how, uh, how how large this faction is that would be where I'm sitting, but I, I still think January 1st is realistic. I think that they can, I, I like, I believe that they have got all of the things that they would need in place to start a season on January 1st. And then I think they've got a schedule finalized or multiple different schedules finalized. I, I believe that behind closed doors, they have figured out some of the travel. They figured out the, some of the different protocols and procedures to make sure that they can get this done and, and mitigate some of the risks that go along with playing a season with travel in, in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. So I, I think that they, I think they've got all of that stuff uh, figured out or pretty close to figured out behind closed doors. And now what needs to be determined is, is this stuff that we just talked about, the agreement from a financial standpoint between the players and the owners. So I, I still think January 1st is feasible, but yeah, you need to allow enough time for pen to be put to paper on any changes to the CBA so that players can get to their cities and quarantine and isolate and then be ready to start training camps in mid-December. Like we're, we're hearing December 15th, for training camps, which would mean you've got to start getting to your cities in early December, and here we are on November 21st. So that that gives us like yeah about a week, a little bit, little bit more than a week maybe for them to make headway and figure out what this agreement is going to be. So I still think January 1st is realistic. I, I absolutely believe that Gary Bettman is is pushing hard for this behind the scenes and and part of the reason why is that I think that it's twofold I think the fact that they want to have as much of a buffer at the end of their proposed 60 game schedule to maybe make up games that had to be rescheduled I think that's important Uh, and so starting as early as you possibly can gives you that buffer at the end of the season and if you don't need it then you can start the playoffs a little earlier and then number two I, I really think the NBA starting December 22nd if, if they're able to get that done, I think that plays a part in it too. Like I, I really believe that if the NHL wants to 
if, if the NHL wants to get the most out of their restart, starting a month after the NBA is not necessarily conducive to that. If they can start within eight or nine days of the NBA and kind of be part of a wave of excitement of sports coming back, that's good for them. If, if they give the NBA a month of kind of um, – unchallenged eyeballs, I don't know if that helps them. So I think there's a couple of things that lead to Gary Bettman pushing for it. I understand that January 1st might not happen. It might be Jan 15, but I, I'm one of the one of the people that believe January 1st is still very much realistic, and uh, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers that's what they end up doing. I think it would be a good way to kick off the year, but I, I fully understand there might be some hurdles that might push it back into the middle of January, but I can't really see it being much later than January 15th myself. Where are you guys? Are you guys more on the the mid-January side of things? Yeah, we were talking just before on air, and I know it's been touched on a little bit, but the what do you do with Christmas and families and, Mm -hmm. you know, the players are typically allowed to, you know, they get that Christmas break. And I know it's been raised as far as, Will they be in kind of lockdown uh, before if for a January 1st date? And I just wonder if that pushes it back to, you know, Jan 7th or Jan 15th, you know, that kind of thing. But um, I do think they play in January. I think the players are sitting around with, you know, this is the time of year that they're used to playing hockey. And as you mentioned, it's very clear that I think Gary Bettman wants to get them back on the ice. And it's it might be it might be a scenario where they do have to wait until after Christmas and maybe a, a training camp starts December twenty seventh and we're starting January eighth or January ninth. I mean that could, that could very well be the case and, and um, that that Christmas hurdle might be enough to push it back. I I just I, I feel like there's enough momentum and I feel like there's enough being said about the desire to get some sort of uh, agreement um, ratified and figured out. I, I feel like whether it's January 1st or January 15th, like we're within six, seven weeks of having meaningful hockey back, which, which is pretty exciting. He's the host of the big show on Sportsnet 960 in Calgary. He's Pat Steinberg joining us on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Well, we don't know when they will start. It's what we are learning is that it looks like it's going to be a 60 game schedule and we are moving closer to the all Canadian division. Uh, there's been a lot of movement this offseason, uh, specifically between the Calgary Flames and the Vancouver Canucks. When you look at the reallocation of the divisions and the fact that both Calgary and Vancouver will be competing against Edmonton, Toronto, Montreal, Winnipeg, and Ottawa, what uh, give us a prognosis of you know who sits better in that case, the Canucks or the Flames? Well, it's like when you when you think of the potential of an all-Canadian division and now what's seeming more and more like the reality of, of that division. Like when you think about it, there's really not much separating the, the six of the seven teams anyway that would be playing. I think at least for me, as much as I think Ottawa has taken some steps forward this offseason, I still think they'd be the seven team and, and kind of the easiest mark of the group. But with Montreal and the improvements they've made in Toronto and the steps that they continue to take and Calgary and Vancouver and Winnipeg and Edmonton, like I, I think you're talking about very little separating six of those seven teams. And I, I would be fascinated to see how close the hockey would be and how tight the division would be at the end of the year. And I guess, I guess, there, there's kind of there, there's two camps when it comes to Flames fans. fans. There's a, a camp that says they have gotten better, and the addition of Jacob Markstrom specifically, and 
bringing him into the fold and solidifying their goaltending position for the first time in almost a decade makes them a better team and makes them better than they were after losing in game six to Dallas in August. And then there's another faction that says, well, did you, was, was that your most pressing need? Did you need to go and spend that type of money on a goalie and then also see a player like TJ Brody walk and not be able to go out and, and revamp your forwards. So, and there's a, there's a faction that says the team isn't as good as they were last year. I happen to believe that uh, we're talking about a flames team that, that is better. I think having a goaltender that can play two thirds of your games and play them well and play at a high level and not have to worry about which goaltender you're going to start. That, to me, is a step forward that this Flames team hasn't been able to take in, in a long, long time. So I, I think that they are positioned slightly better this year than they were the year before. Not, not a massive step forward. I don't think they turned from being a playoff team into a Stanley Cup contender, but I think that they're slightly better. And, and I'm not sure. I, like Vancouver, to me, is really interesting because they, they lose Markstrom and they go out and, and they bring in Holtby. And, and if Demko takes a step from a consistency standpoint, and we see him be a better version of himself than we saw when Markstrom was hurt in the regular season last year. Then I think yep. that I think that tandem of, of Demko and Holtby can be can be pretty solid. And with with who like I I know the Tanev loss is is uh, is is going to be felt, and maybe they're not as deep on the blue line, but. I don't think that I see Vancouver taking a massive step back from where they were last year. I think at the very least they can be the same competitive playoff bubble team that they were uh, in the regular season. And then we saw what happened in the series against Vegas. So I, I, I think that we're talking about two teams that are very, very closely matched. And again, I don't see, I don't see much separating six of the seven teams in this division. So I think 10 games between Calgary and Vancouver could be really, really fun. I think all the Canucks that have made their way to Calgary this offseason makes for an interesting rivalry. Like, yeah, I, I think this could be the, the best Calgary-Vancouver we've seen since they met in the playoffs in 2015. And I, I'm looking forward to it. It's kind of a – do we want to be having to have an all-Canadian division because of the pandemic? Maybe not. But knowing the rivalry that already exists between Calgary and Edmonton and now all of this – storyline stuff between the Canucks and Flames this offseason. I'm, I'm pretty jacked. I, I think it'll be fun. Yeah, I mean, you throw in Edmonton and Winnipeg into that mix as well. It's I'm 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 really excited for that. We got a, a you know a bunch of games to get some of those rivalries prepped and going. And last year, I mean, Battle of Alberta speaks for itself. And as you said, you know, those Canucks jumping the jumping ship and joining Calgary is going to make for a lot of fun. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about the NHL and its season and its possible schedule. Uh, the CFL this week uh, has announced the schedule for next season. Uh, what, what were your big takeaways of, of where the CFL is at and how important was this kind of announcement for them? Well, I thought it was, I thought it was important because uh, you have the CFLPA coming out a couple days prior saying, we want a commitment from the league that they're going to play next year. And, and maybe, maybe they didn't come out and say, we will play no questions asked next year, but you send out an 18 game schedule and you map things out like that. I, I think it's a pretty big step forward. And, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of criticism on the CFL this off season and I guess this extended off season or no season um, and and I understand part of it like I thought I thought the CFL shot themselves in the foot a little bit when they seemed a little unprepared going in front of uh, the government committee and looking for funding and and I think that not playing a season is 
is something that doesn't look good when you have a lot of other leagues that were able to figure it out, not even just the NHL and the NBA. Like we're talking about the CPL and Major League Soccer, they were able to get their seasons done or, or restarted and do something, and the CFL wasn't. But since that point, I mean, the fact that they hadn't announced a schedule prior, I, I, it's like, well, why are you criticizing them? They don't start until June. Let them figure out and get their ducks in a row. And they did their uh, their virtual Grey Cup that week this week and as part of it announced the schedule. So I, I thought it was significant. I thought it was a big step forward. There's still a lot of steps they need to take. But, I mean, you think about it. If, if everything goes according to the plan that we hope it's going to in, in this country and on this continent, that by the time they get training camp started and by the time they kick off their first regular season game, we're kind of hoping that we're going to be in a much better spot in the world and that maybe we're starting to get out of this thing and, and return to normal and, and be in a really good momentum spot. So I, I thought it was significant. The fact that they announced a full 18-game schedule was significant. And I, I'm I'm hoping that we see the CFL back and better than ever next year because I'm kind of a I'm kind of a CFL nerd, so not having it this year has been has been very strange. So it's it was I thought it was big. I don't know if you're ever going to please the people that criticize the league and, and are always on them, but from from my standpoint, announcing a schedule was important, and now they have a number of other steps to to take before they can actually get this thing going but i'm feeling pretty confident they're going to play next year yeah well we we hope to see it uh pat thanks for taking the time uh appreciate the welcome to the calgary market and hopefully we do this again soon that was good guys welcome to calgary all right pat steinberg if you know if you listen to 960 you know to find them uh we will wrap up the show next it is on air with israel fair and alex black is Sportsnet Today, and you're on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Now here are your hosts, Israel and Alex. We're wrapping up on air for another week here. Uh, If you are listening to Sportsnet 650 in Vancouver and have been listening to us in this time slot for the last few months, first of all, thank you. Uh, If you are listening to Sportsnet 960 in Calgary, and are wondering what exactly you're listening to. Uh, we are on air. Uh, I'm Israel Fair. My co-host is Alex Blair. Our producer is Josh Elliott Wolf. And uh, this is our first week, our first weekend, our first Saturday show. Uh, simulcast Vancouver and Calgary. You can find us here every Saturday, 12 to 2 Pacific time, 1 to 3 Mountain time. Um, we did a little bit of an introduction off of the top. You can find that on the podcast. Uh, you can also always get in, in touch with us. Uh, our text line is 650-650. And uh, Alex, we do have a few texts from uh, throughout the show that uh, that we'll get to here. Uh, why don't I start with a text from Scott in New West. Uh, he goes, uh, Vive and Derlago to the lease for Tiger Williams. What a terrible trade. Canucks would have won the Cup in 82 if that deal doesn't happen, in my opinion. Uh, we just talked to Rick, who's uh, promoting his memoir. Um, this is before both of our times, but that was uh, that was an interesting time in the Canucks history. And, and, and Rick talked about the fact that, you know, he was moved out of here pretty quickly. He's moved out of Vancouver quite quickly, which was a, a lot more common back then with, you know, uh, renowned players or prospects. Teams were much more trigger happy than they are now. Well, and, and Rick shared the story because that was one of the questions that I wanted to know as a, as a fifth overall pick in 1979. 
47 games into his rookie year, he gets dealt to the Leafs. I'm thinking, okay, what what transpired there? And and he let us in on the story that, you know, coach at that point, Harry Neal, didn't think he was in shape and had even joked that he could, you know, Harry Neal could have beaten him in a foot race. But uh, it does get us on the topic of of good trades and bad trades. And it's something that we had chatted about this week because of uh, last week and in sort of honor of our debut and maiden voyage here in Calgary. It was the uh, the 15 year anniversary of the Mika Kiprasov trade that Daryl Sutter pulled off in uh, 2005. And you know when you look back, they gave up only a second round pick for a goaltender that you know became a league best and led them all the way to Game Seven of the Cup Final and is is still incredibly revered here in Calgary. And uh, it got us thinking about some of the most lopsided trades or some some of the best trades for franchises. And uh, I know you did a little bit of digging this week and I did a little bit of digging. So why don't, why don't you kick us off with, with something that you liked? Well, the obvious one from the Canucks perspective is Marcus Naslin. That one gets included on a lot of those lopsided trade lists. You're talking about a player who, I mean, look, he was a, a big name prospect, a guy that had had uh, some pretty big tournaments at the World Juniors, playing alongside Peter Forsberg, was drafted by Pittsburgh, coming off of Pittsburgh's run at you know Mario and Yager's peak, had shown some some strides and, and shown that he had some talent, but it, it just didn't work in Pittsburgh. Shows up in Vancouver, becomes the captain, is a guy that uh, you know was uh, at the height of his career, one of the five or six best players in the NHL, has a you know a, a players MVP from the Players Association to prove it. And uh, has his number up in the rafters uh, at Rogers Arena, which is, uh, you know, uh, there's there's only a handful of guys that, that have that. Maybe no cup in Vancouver, but there are a few player banners up there. And uh, while Marcus Nasland was a player that maybe got criticized to some degree toward the end of his tenure in Vancouver, uh, whether it was the captaincy or, or people thinking that, uh, you know, he, he wasn't the right guy to lead the team. The numbers don't lie. He was about as effective as any player that we saw in that early part of that decade. I mean, if I think if you're looking at it from a pure talent standpoint, you're looking at Peter Forsberg, you're looking at Marcus Naslin, and, and you're looking in Calgary at Jerome McGinley. And the, the Canucks did not pay much. I believe Alex Stoyanov was the player that went back to Pittsburgh, right? So it was it was a lopsided trade. That's the one that, that as I said, gets included in a lot of those lists, not just in Vancouver, but across the NHL. And you touched on the Jerome McGinley trade, which was one that, you know, I think fans in Calgary will remember. And... It's one that, you know, you could argue actually worked out for both teams. I don't think anyone in Calgary is displeased with that deal in any regard. But you go back to December of 95, Joe Neuendijk is holding out for a new contract. And they flip him to Dallas, who at that point was a good team looking to try and get over the hump. And Joe did that for them, winning the Conn Smythe and the Stanley Cup with Dallas in 99. And you get back a young Jerome McGinley, who'd been drafted in the first round by Dallas. And, you know, Jerome, one of seven players to score 30 goals in 11 consecutive seasons, 600 goals in the NHL, Flames leader in goals, points. I mean, that's, you know, it, that's a great example of a trade of two teams at two different places in history. And Pat Steinberg talked about it. That sort of era in Calgary was not a particularly good era. Right. But when you look back on it, it was the birth of Iggy in Southern Alberta and uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned as well, Peter Forsberg, cause that's the other one. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's no arguing Eric Lindros a good player and a Hall of Famer. But here's what here's what Philly got. Like, here's what Philly gave up to get Eric Lindros out of Quebec. P. 
Peter Forsberg, Ron Hextall, Chris Simon, Kerry Huffman, Steve Duchesne, two first round picks and $15 million cash. <laughs> like as good as Eric Lindros was, I still think that Quebec, you know, and then Quebec goes to Colorado and they win a cup. And Peter Forsberg is, you know, I think you could argue Peter Forsberg's career against Eric Lindros's. You know, unfortunately, the Big E was hampered by concussion issues, and I don't think he ever got the longevity that, you know, he would have liked. And we didn't see the longevity from Forsberg either. No. Yeah, he had foot issues late in his career. But I think at his peak, I mean, he was a Hart Trophy, you know, Art Ross. Yeah. You know, he was and and sort of played in this really unique way. And he really, you know, I mean, Colorado had Joe Sackick, but in some ways, Peter Forsberg was, you know, in some ways, the guy that drove the bus. Um, we talked about it. The other one that jumps out to me, just sort of a general trade. And it's notable because it's the only time in the four major sports in North America's, uh, history that a player was traded during a year that he ended up winning the MVP. Do you know who that player was? Oh, fill us in. That was the 2005 trade of Joe Thornton from Boston. Ah, to yes. That's right. And you know, you know what Boston got back in that deal? This Bag is of peanuts and tickets to Fenway. Honestly, Wayne Primo, Marco Sturm, and Brad Stewart for Joe Thornton in his in his prime. I mean, that was assist that he was getting, you know, two assists a game almost. Yeah, yeah, he ends up finishing with I think it was 118 points that season between both the Bruins and the Sharks. Wins the Art Ross and the Hart, uh, and Bruins GM Mike O'Connell, who made that deal, was out of a job five months later. So, well, another trade that actually comes to mind, a recent one also involves Boston, different sport. Uh, we might be talking about the Mookie Betts trade. If the Dodgers continue to play at a high level and they're going to invest uh, there, they've got, you know, still got a pretty strong prospect pipeline. They went out, they got the best player available uh, outside of Mike Trout, I suppose. In a trade, they commit to him for 12 years. If the Dodgers pull off a couple of more championships after the one that they just won, that's a trade that we're going to look at and say, wow, the Boston Red Sox really traded their best position player since Ted Williams uh, because they didn't want to commit to him long term. That, that, that's a tough one to live with. I know the Red Sox have finally won a few World Series since uh, the curse, uh, but that's, that's still, regardless of how many championships your team has won, that, that is a tough pill to swallow. Well, in his first year in Dodger Blue, he manages to get the Dodgers over the hump and get them their first World Series since 1988. Uh, the only other one that really jumped out to me, and it's um, I saw an anniversary photo this week of Kobe Bryant and his daughter. I think it was at one of the NBA games was the trade of Kobe Bryant for Vladi Divac sort of shortly after the trade at the 96 draft. And, you know, you look at the player, I think Kobe, you could art it's it, pretty indisputable. I think at this point that he's a top five player all time. And, you know, Vladi Divac's good player. But when you look back on that trade for the Charlotte Hornets, that's, uh, you know, that's one that goes down in Laker. Laker legendary. So um, we should mention it is NBA free agency going on today. There's a lot of moving pieces. Uh, one of the more notable ones that's just broken in the last few minutes is uh, Rajon Rondo signs a two-year deal going to the Atlanta Hawks, uh, $15 million. Okay. Atlanta yeah. making some moves. They were a team that uh, was kind of a bit on the rise toward the end of last season. Season gets cut short. Uh, they've decided to to invest in in some some free agents now. And look, it, it's not that long ago. All of these players are gone, but it's not that long ago that they were 
one of those teams kind of on that bubble in the Eastern Conference making conference finals. Not, I mean, they were one of those teams kind of like Indiana before them that just runs into LeBron and then doesn't have much of an answer. Toronto was there for a while as well. They've had a huge upheaval, a bit of a rebuild, but they're, they're looking to bring in some of these, some veteran players. And uh, the NBA free agency has been, yeah, since it opened yesterday uh, on Friday, it's been uh, fast and furious. Uh, we do have a couple of texts here that uh, I'd like to get to uh, mostly, or they're, they're both about, our conversation about the NHL, uh, some of the salary conversations between the Players Association and the league, and then also uh, the financial situation. And th- this text specifically about uh, our, our chat to, to open the show about uh, how many fans can get into the stadiums, that kind of thing. I'll start with the one about the salary. This, it's from Rick uh, from Surrey, who writes, I don't know about the escrow, but the deferrals don't sound too bad if it is guaranteed, perhaps with some interest, if it will help get the season going in January. And then we have an unsigned text about our conversation on fans and uh, the return to NHL stadiums. I find North American press negative and the message needs to change. Australia has no vaccine in the last few weeks. They've had championship games and international competitions held to full unmasked stadiums. The message to people needs to change to it's possible. Not that we have to have reduced capacity for three more years. Australia has COVID just like we do. And there are stadiums are full to over 30,000 fans. It can be done here in a short time frame. Uh, thanks for the text. Quickly, what I'll say there is that uh, that is ignoring what's going on in the United States. Uh, We might feel, uh, and I mean, there are restrictions being put on in Canada here, whether it's in British Columbia, whether it's in Ontario, uh, whether it's in the prairies that have been recent here as uh, cases are spiking to, you know, our relative terms. And what's happening in the United States is going to have the most impact on the future of the NHL, the future of fans in the seats. I mean, we've seen a few in the NFL so far this season, obviously much bigger stadiums than the arenas that we're talking about with hockey. We saw a few at the world series, again, much bigger venue and their um, outdoor and their outdoor venues and, as yes. well. So that's, which I, I think mean, is worth mentioning. We see, we just saw, and we, we talked about it to open the show. The Raptors were denied, uh, to start their season at the very least in Toronto, they're going to be playing out of Tampa. We saw that happen with the blue Jays this summer. So as, as much as I would, I would love to be optimistic and positive about the future. Yeah. Of, we're right. We're right there with you. Yeah. I mean, it's just, there's, there's some, there's some science, there's some science at play that uh, I'm, I'm not going to go against. And I think, I think the leagues are doing their due diligence there in terms of being safe, because look, uh, there's the two sides of it. There's the financial side, the NHL would be in a much better place. They wouldn't necessarily be having to ask the players for salary deferments if they could have some fans in the seat or at least some sort of plan there. And uh, from just a morale or community building perspective, uh, given the challenges of this year, it would be, it would be awesome to go to a Canucks game, to go to a Flames game, uh, especially, I mean, we're, we're getting the Canadian division in part because of some of these challenges. But uh, even if we, if we, we didn't have that, I mean, given what's played out this off season, uh, I think people would be paying top dollar to, to go to a, a Canucks flame game uh, this year, given, uh, given what's played out. Well, in our, in our discussion in the first block came off of the comments earlier this week of Ottawa Senators owner, Eugene Melnick, who, you know, he said he's not expecting to be able to fill his arena for potentially a couple of years. And his arena, I think, holds in the neighborhood of 19,000 fans. He's expecting to maybe be able to do six or 7,000 fans. And he's predicting that that could be for a couple of years. So 
Um, that's somebody with a pharmaceutical background. That's somebody who's an owner of an NHL team, uh, owner of a sports team that plays in an indoor North American facility. And, uh, you know, Ottawa doesn't share their building with another team, but I think that's worth mentioning as well, that a lot of these arenas uh, share both, you know, if you look at Chicago, for example, or the Staples Center in L.A., you're sharing not only the Lakers and the Clippers, but you've got the Los Angeles Kings. So you've got a lot of teams that are sharing dressing rooms, sanitization, things like that. Right. Yep. I mean, listen, we, we would all love things to go back to normal, but uh, you know, Izzy and I are not health experts. We're just following <laughs> far from it. Yeah. The meth, the message of the health ex- experts specifically here in Canada. Um, uh, I, I want to get to one thing before we get to something that, that you're excited about. And then if you're a golf fan in British Columbia and Alberta, I, I'm sure you're excited about uh, the Seahawks had a big win on Thursday night against the Cardinals. Russell Wilson really struggled the two games prior to that against Buffalo and against the Rams. We've had this back and forth throughout the season. I've been a bit more optimistic. Maybe some of that is my bias because I am, uh, I identify as, as a fan of the Seattle Seahawks, but they've, regained the lead in the division they beat the team that was on their heels they actually were tied at that six and three with a six and three record with the cardinals and now the seahawks win that game on thursday night and have the easiest remaining strength of schedule with their upcoming games the eagles the giants the jets in washington and then closing out with divisional games against the rams in san francisco uh, you'd been the the negative one uh or at least uh, the maybe the re- maybe the realistic one but um What's your take on, on where the Seahawks are at after that one? Look, I thought they they answered some of the questions that we both agreed on in previous weeks. One was defense, and we saw Carlos Dunlap come in. He had two sacks, two of the three sacks that the Seahawks had. And, you know, the Seahawks also had seven quarterback hits in that game, whereas the previous game against Kyler Murray and the, and the Cardinals, they yeah, had nothing. Had none. Yeah, yeah. So you could see the, the impact that Dunlap made for that defense. I also thought the emergence of a running game with Carlos Hyde, uh, he had 70, uh, 79 yards and a team. Yeah, he was good. Yeah. And Seattle rushed for 165 yards. So they were able to, you know, after a couple of disappointing weeks from Russell Wilson, who had really carried the ball for them in the, in the first few weeks, you know, Russell had a nice game, you know, 23 to 28, 197 yards. So he wasn't throwing for huge yardage, but he had two TDs, but yeah. he was able, he didn't have to carry the load with the running game. So it was yeah. a much more balanced attack. And I think if the Seahawks can continue this, I think the Seahawks are getting in the playoffs. I just don't yeah. know if they are realistically a Super Bowl contender, but I think the next few weeks will tell. And yeah. as, Tom, as Tom Brady says, the NFL season starts at American Thanksgiving. Right. And it's been interesting because those Bucks have had some ups and downs since then. The Saints were the team that was on the scene. Now Drew Brees is injured. The, the, the Saints are going to be going to Taysom Hill at quarterback, which has a lot of people uh, kind of scratching their eyebrows a little bit. And uh, the Packers have been steady and solid, and they've gotten a lot of wins there. But they're, they're a team. I mean, we had a big Nazar on with us a, a few weeks ago. who's was a big NFL guy for Sportsnet 650. And he said, we've seen this from the Packers before. You know, they've put up these really strong regular seasons. But when when push comes to shove, when they're going to get hit in the mouth in the playoffs, they they fold. So there's still still a lot of questions uh, about this. And uh, while there have been some some COVID questions when it comes to the NFL, uh, even as cases are rising everywhere, this the season is still the season is still going forward. And from a television perspective, at least the television product that's been a success. All right, let's let's get to, to to your favorite topic of the week, something near and dear to your heart. Uh 
Well, it's big golf news if you, well, I mean, it's big golf news throughout Canada, but specifically if you live in Alberta or in British Columbia, uh, the Cabot Golf Company, which is the resort that started Cabot Links, Cabot Cliffs, and the new 10-hole par 3 nest course in Inverness, Nova Scotia, uh, which has very quickly, uh, I would say in the span of less than 10 years, become Canada's number one sort of international golf draw. More than Banff, more than Jasper, uh, Cabot is is really put Canadian golf on the map. They announced this week that they are coming to Revelstoke, BC. So sort of situated kind of perfectly right between Vancouver and Calgary. They are they are building what is going to be known as Cabot Pacific. Uh, it's going to be an 18-hole course designed by Rod Whitman, who is an Alberta native. Uh, and he's built, uh, I mean, he was the architect of the original Cabot Lynx. Uh, he was the architect with, uh, along with Richard Zokel of Sagebrush which was for a long time a top 10 course in, in Canada, uh, Blackhawk in Edmonton and Wolf Creek in his hometown just north of Red Deer. Uh, they are building a 150-room resort, uh, spa. It's going to be right right where sort of the Revelstoke Ski Hill is, which has the, the highest vertical of all major skiing uh, throughout all of North America. And they're, they're estimating a 2023 completion. So this is... This is really big positive news, not only for golf in BC and golf in Alberta, but it's sort of a another flag in the ground for sort of international golf. And Cabot has really established that brand outside of the Canadian borders. And, you know, Cabot Links and Cabot Cliffs are one of those areas that's a, a it's a huge destination. And the two owners, uh, Ben Cowan Dewar, who is uh, a Canadian, a Toronto business guy, and Mike Kaiser, who is the founder of the Bandon Dunes Resort in Southern Oregon, uh, they are the owners behind this. And uh, anyway, it's exciting. It's uh, it's a couple years away, but uh, it will put a another major sort of golf destination in sort of the Rockies to go along with um, the two big ones, Bam- Banff and Jasper, but. You know, with Mickelson National now being built uh, and sort of opened out here in in Calgary, uh, you've got the 36 holes at Kananaskis. Uh, you've got Grey Wolf at Invermere. Um, there is a lot of really high end golf uh, available for residents of both BC and Alberta. We actually didn't mention this at all after uh, because you know it's, it's been almost a week, but we we were heavy in Masters coverage last week. Uh, We've only got a couple of minutes here, but what Dustin Johnson, you, you know, finally gets that green jacket was a pretty dominant performance. While we were while we were on the air on Saturday, he was putting together a pretty impressive round and managed to close it out with a, a pretty solid Sunday as well. What was your big takeaway of, of the Masters this year? Well, we had Adam Stanley on from Sportsnet to talk about it last week, and you know, he was mentioning that because of Dustin's history not being able to close out majors even no matter what his lead was, it was going to be interesting at the start of Sunday to see, you know, if that, if that lead stayed, if it started to decrease and out of the gate on Sunday, Dustin, actually, I think he went into it with a four or five shot lead and it was down to two shots, I think four or five holes in. And he started to think, Oh, oh is this going to happen again? But then he sort of readied himself. And from there on, he just had a, you know, one of those really fabulous final rounds at the masters uh, ends up finishing 20 under which was, you know, set the record for Augusta National. And uh, good for him. He picks up his second major to go along with uh, the 2016 U.S. Open that he won at Oakmont. Yeah, I was sort of hoping, I mean, to, to your point about what Adam talked to us about on, on Saturday, that uh, the, the other big names that were just ahead of him uh, and, you know, would have got a little bit of an earlier start on Sunday, might have been able to put some pressure on with a really strong front nine. But 
they basically played to, to what they'd been playing through uh, throughout the tournament. You know, they were kind of a two under, three under uh, round. And, and as Adam told us last week, uh, it's it's the back nine where people can really make up some ground. And we didn't see that. And we saw we saw Dustin Johnson close it out, made some some big shots down the stretch. And uh, yeah, I mean, a guy who has about as much talent as anybody on the tour. Uh, we saw some emotion from him as well, which was, uh, which was a bit interesting too. Yeah. Really rare. So, uh, anyway, congratulations to, to DJ. It was, uh, by all accounts, uh, you know, in a good place in his life now. All right. That's it for us. Thanks to Rick Vive and Pat Steinberg for joining us Do check out those interviews on our podcast. Thanks to our producer, Josh Elliott Wolf. We'll be back next week. This is on air with Israel fair and Alex Blair.